thank you, uh, Eric, for the invitation and the kind words. And, uh, you know, I'll say it's six years you've been here, Eric, six? Almost eight? Yeah, six, right. Um, and, you know, it. you don't, I mean, they can, you can call somebody pastor. You can call them, take a vote, and put their name on the board. But that, I mean, you're pastor in name, but that doesn't just happen by the church calling somebody. It takes a while. I mean, it takes a while to be out among the people. It takes a while to get to know people, to visit them in the hospitals, to do funerals for their family members, to preach over a period of time. And, um, yeah, yeah, Eric's the pastor, and uh, I appreciate his his staying here for the that because a lot of people come and go before they really become the pastor before they have the opportunity to to be that person for a congregation and i'm proud of his stick to itiveness and uh to be here now and and to be the pastor in every sense of that and uh of course i'm proud of him and uh, so happy today to see some other students who uh one introduced his name was tim who who goes here are you here tonight tim uh from what year did you graduate, Tim? 99. So he his last two years were my first two years, and uh, Tim was in some of my classes, and uh, I was involved in his ordination low those many years ago. And uh, so I hadn't seen him in forever this morning. He came up and, and introduced himself again, shook my hand. It was so, so good to reconnect with him, and then uh, Daniel and Rebecca Ellis, uh, I ran into them this morning. Uh, they walked by me, and I thought, I think that those are former students. But, you know, these eyes don't see as well as they used to. And, and so I kind of lost track of it because, you know, I had to do the sermon. And then uh, afterwards, they were waiting to talk to me. And uh, they're 2006 graduates who've just been visiting here a little bit. And uh, so I'm just, it, that, that's, that's pure joy for me. So uh, there are those former students, and then these people like you all who are not former students, but still that I had the opportunity to be involved in your life. And it, I know it was just Sundays, but but just feel like we're connected. And uh, so it's it's a I'm just it's just the best thing to be able to do this and come back and see you. And so uh, I'm running out of time, so I better get going. I've got 145 psalms to get to tonight. So uh, I'm thinking we'll be done a little early probably and we'll go to Brahms for some ice cream. So I'm going to do a little bit of an introduction to Psalms and then I'm only going to do the last five Psalms and I'm not going to be able to do a lot of detailed exegesis of them, but you'll see kind of why I do that as a way to end a study of the Psalms. But I did want to do an introduction because I think it's, it's the kind of thing that for me uh, shows the beauty of the psalms, God's providence, not only in the individual wording of, of individual psalms, but in the structuring of the psalms, the putting together of the 150. They're not just randomly pieced together. There's purpose and intention even in the structure of the 150 psalms. So, so I want to step back and look at the big picture, and then we'll zoom in at, to, to the end of the book. So I mentioned this morning 150 songs, poems, um, and prayers that reflect the life of Israel over that long period of time, really between David and after the rebuilding of the temple. And, and, and because of that, uh, I think it qualifies as a songbook for any people because all of Israel's experiences are reflected there. And so we find ourselves having similar experiences, not the same, but similar and, and there's just no experience that you can have where there's not a psalm that seems to resonate with that experience. There, you think about how popular they are for Christians. I've, I've got on my shelf several just New Testaments, just, just an English New Testament. And, but in every one of those, because I checked when I started thinking about this, it was not just the New Testament. I've got three or four of them. It's the New Testament and Psalms. And one of them had the New Testament Psalms and Proverbs. But all of them had the Psalms attached to the New Testament. Now think about that. Why the Psalms? You know, why not Exodus or Genesis or one of the prophets or Song of Solomon? But why, why the Psalms? And, and I think it just points to uh, how important they've been for Christians. 
that you would want to purchase a New Testament that also had the Psalms. So it, it got me to thinking, what is it about the Psalms that make them so appealing and have in the history of Christianity? And, of course, the first answer is they're Scripture. Uh, that's a no-brainer, but it's worth mentioning uh, that Paul says in uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for correction and conviction and teaching and training in righteousness so that the person of God might be fully equipped fully equipped for every good work. So, of course, it's meaningful to us because it's Scripture. But looking beyond that, I think there's a uniqueness to this Scripture uh, that makes them stand out to us. And the uniqueness is that every other part of Scripture, you think about the law, you think about God giving the, the commandments to Moses, you think about prophets who speak uh, God's word that's given to them so the direction of the revelation is down from God through the prophet or through uh, Moses to the people the direction of the flow in scripture generally is from God downward to us you think about in the New Testament you think about Paul writing a letter we think about God inspiring Paul to write these words and then Paul delivers those letters to the churches. The flow is this way. Even like the book of Revelation, it's God giving a vision uh, to John. And then John writes down what he sees. But that's the direction. But think about the Psalms. The Psalms are a collection of poems and prayers and songs where Israelites, the people of God, are expressing themselves to God. Now the direction of the flow is from human beings to God, and yet it's still inspired scripture. And, and the appeal of that is, it teaches us how to express ourselves to God when we find ourselves in similar experiences as the psalmist. How do you pray when you don't have words to pray? How do you sing the blues when you don't have a song? What do you do when you're so angry that you just don't know what to do with life. Maybe angry at God. What do you do when you feel like shaking your fist at God? What do you do when you wish that God would do bad things to some enemy you have? I mean, like knock their teeth out. Or worse. Now, I'd say you shouldn't feel that way. You shouldn't be so angry at God that you just don't know what to do. And you shouldn't wish vengeance on your enemies. Okay, I agree, you shouldn't. But what about when you do? What do you do then when you do feel that way? Well, it's clear the psalmist often felt that way. And so it provides for us some model of how we might express ourselves to God in similar kinds of experiences. And on the other hand, I think sometimes we're so overcome with gratitude with God, we don't even have the words. And you read a psalm like Psalm 8, or you, and, and you see, wow, that's how I feel. And you can pray that, sing that to God. There's a model for how to express yourself through all of life's experiences. So I think they're appealing for that reason. And then I think they're also appealing to us because they point to Christ. Now this is a, an aspect of it that's often, I think, overlooked. But all Scripture points to Christ, not just New Testament. I mean, the thing that unifies these 66 books, the thing that makes them Christian Scripture is that Christ is the unifying thread that runs through all of it. And, and my question for any biblical text is, how does it point to Christ? Now, I grew up uh, learning a method of interpreting the Bible that's still very useful for me, but there's one presupposition in it that I, I don't hold anymore. And, and that, that, that sort of approach that I learned was the meaning of the text is found in the author's intent. That means the human author. So whatever a passage in Romans, Romans means is whatever the author intended it to mean. That's the meaning of the text. Or you look at a psalm and you say, well, whatever the psalmist meant, that's the meaning of the text. Well, I'm all on board with that as the starting place for interpreting and finding the meaning of the text. But I've come to be more and more convinced the older I get that there is an author beyond the human author who may have an intention in the text that the human author couldn't have known. And where would I get a crazy idea like that? 
from reading the New Testament and seeing how the New Testament writers interpret the Old Testament. And they're reading it in ways that I would have never passed Eric or Daniel in my hermeneutics class because it looks like that wasn't the author's intent. During the Christmas season, you're going through Matthew's gospel and he keeps pointing in five passages to, to prophets, to specific passages in the prophets and saying something with Jesus happened to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Like when they take Jesus, when Mary and Joseph, because the angels told Joseph to take the, the newborn babe to Egypt to escape the decree by Herod the Great that the, the two, two years and younger children be killed, so they take him to Egypt to escape that. City of ref, uh, country of refuge for the family. And Matthew sees in that a fulfillment of Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I shall call my son. Now you go look at the Hosea passage, and there is no doubt Hosea is talking about the Exodus. And my son is Israel. It's just no question. You just read that text. Out of Egypt I shall call my son is a reference to the Exodus. The whole point of that passage in Hosea is, what's wrong with you people? I brought you up out of Egypt, and now look at your disobedience. So if you're going just by author's intent, that's talking about the Exodus. But what if God, as the ultimate author, already sees a fuller meaning in that text that the Hosea couldn't have known? But Matthew knows because he witnesses them taking Jesus to Egypt. So that's how Matthew was reading the Old Testament. Now, back in my seminary days, my professors would have acknowledged that, but they'd said, yeah, but Matthew's inspired, and you're not. So you can't interpret the Bible that way. And I guess I sort of nodded my head and said, okay, but... Is it possible that these New Testament writers are teaching us how to read the Old Testament by the way they read the Old Testament? And the way they read the Old Testament is they find Jesus everywhere. So you're not going to hear me getting on you, telling you I don't like that interpretation if you're finding Jesus somewhere in the Old Testament because for me, it all points to Jesus. And uh, there are lots of errors you can make. Finding Jesus in the Old Testament is not going to be one I'm going to find an error in. And so when we read the Psalms, I want to know how does it point to Jesus. And so you start reading Jesus himself, and you say, how does Jesus make sense out of the religious leader's rejection of him? And it's by reading the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 110. Um, where the stone that the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone and it is marvelous in his eyes. Jesus quotes that in each of the Gospels to explain the religious leader's rejection of him. In the Psalms. Now, if, I, if Jesus hadn't said that, I'm not sure I would have made that connection to Jesus, but I can see it now. And it says, you can look for Jesus in the Psalms. And uh, at the great, you know, the, the, and then we heard Jesus this morning, from the cross, he quotes Psalm 22.1. He sees his own experience through the lens of that righteous sufferer in, John, in, uh, in uh, Psalm 22.1. That's one of the seven sayings from the cross. Another of the seven sayings from the cross, it's in, uh, Luke chapter, it's in Luke's account uh, of, the, of his death, chapter 24. Um, Jesus says, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's Psalm 31.5. It's another quote from a lament psalm. Two of his seven sayings from the cross are citations from the psalms. Now, if you're not looking for Jesus in the text, you're not going to find him in, into your hands I commit my spirit. If you're just looking for the author's intent, you won't be able to see how that connects to Jesus. But Jesus made that connection. What would Jesus do? He'd find Jesus in the psalms. What should you do? Find Jesus in the Psalms. At Peter's uh, Pentecost sermon, he cites two Psalms. Uh, he cites the one, uh, sit at my footstool until I make uh, your enemies, or sit down until I make your enemies a footstool, my footstool, or your footstool. And then Psalm 16, which is, uh, I will not abandon my Holy One to decay. 
And based on those two passages, those two psalms, Peter says at Pentecost, that comes to the climax of his sermon, therefore this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Messiah, or Lord and Christ. Based on those two psalms, what's he doing? He's finding Jesus in the psalm. Peter does it. He cites the passage about uh, the, chief, the, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Paul cites the Psalms to explain the giving of the spiritual gifts. In the book of Revelation, it's Psalm 2, 9, that this king will rule with a rod iron. That is like the climax of Revelation 12, where the great dragon gets thrown out of heaven. I mean, just booted right out. And you know who boots him out? This child born to this woman who will rule with a rod of iron. That's how the writer of Revelation understands the nature of Jesus' rule, with a rod of iron, and kicks the great dragon out of heaven. You, you get my point? How, how important any Old Testament book is for understanding and pointing us to Jesus, but certainly in the Psalms because the New Testament writers do it so frequently. And Psalm 110 is the most cited uh, Old Testament passage, chapter in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. So why, why have the Psalms been so important to Christianity? It's Scripture, and it's unique in the direction of the flow that it's inspired Scripture, and yet somehow it still reflects human emotions expressed to God, and then their ability to point us to Christ, as the New Testament writers uh, have demonstrated. So now I want to talk about their structure. So got your Bible with you. Uh, go to Psalm 1. And I, I want to talk about how they, how they are, these, these five books of Psalms are pieced together. Now there's the first revelation. That the Psalms are not 150 freestanding poems or prayers. The 150 Psalms are grouped together into five books now, you can see this very clearly in the Hebrew Bible where they're marked off as book one, book two, book three, book four, book five. Some English translations will follow that pattern and also mark off book one. So I'm interested, when you look at Psalm 1, do you have something at the beginning there that says maybe book one, and it should say 1 to 41? How many of you have something that indicates that? Okay, that's reflecting the way the Hebrew Bible breaks these psalms up into five books. So we've got 1 to 41 is book 1. So that's our first book of the psalms. So if you want to think about it, you know, think about the Baptist hymnal, hymnal being divided into five sections. Now it's not, but you'd understand if it was. So it's, that's kind of what this looks like. So 1 through 41. So now I want to look at the first two psalms, and I know Darren, I think, did this the night he taught, so I'm not going to try to break down. I'm not interested in doing much in these two, but I just want to show how these first two psalms are a wonderful introduction to the whole book of psalms and to the book one, okay? So Psalm 1, Blessed is the one who does not walk in the way of the wicked or stand in the way of the sinners or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. And then it describes that person as a person who's like a tree planted by the rivers of water. You get the idea. But look at what shows up in Psalm 1, which is the introduction to the whole collection, a reference to meditating on God's law day and night as the way to wisdom and as the way to strength and, and the ability to persevere, it's all rooted in a meditation and giving yourself to God's law. That tells you right up front that these psalms are going to teach us or help us obey God's law, God's instruction. And, and you think about how many psalms have as a theme wisdom and usually through the obedience to God's law. Think of Psalm 119. It's like, I don't know, 173, I should have looked, something like 173, but it's a bunch of verses that verse after verse after verse uses a synonym to describe the law or the statutes or the decrees or the instructions and how it's good. 
It's a perfect opening to a collection of five books of Psalms to point us to delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating on his law day and night. That's going to be the start. Now look at Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire, the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. This is a royal psalm. It's talking about earthly kings versus the king. Now look at verse 6. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And uh, for me, this is clearly a reference to Jesus. The New Testament cites this passage repeatedly as a reference to Jesus, who is the king. And it points us to the coming kingdom. Verse 8, ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. That's that passage that's quoted by in the book of Revelation twice in chapter 2 and chapter 12 as a way to describe the nature of Jesus' rule as king with a rod of iron. So what do we find here in Psalm 2? A reference to the coming king and the kingdom that is coming. And then look at the end of it, the very end. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead you to, to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So Psalm 2 ends with blessed is the one who. Well, where did Psalm 1 begin? Psalm 1, 1. Blessed is the one who. So Psalms 1 and 2 look like an introduction that begin and end with the call, or with the blessed is the one who. You see that? It looks like the perfect introduction to the collection where we're going to hear about meditating on God's law and we're going to look forward to God's coming king and kingdom. So for me, book three, or excuse me, Psalm three, it really is the first Psalm of book one because one and two is like introduction. And then Psalm 3 provides the first psalm, really, of book 1, a psalm of David, when he fled from his son Absalom. You know what kind of psalm Psalm 3 is? A lament. What would you do if you were the king and your son was trying to kill you so that he could be king? You might lament. And he does. Um, so you hear things like, uh, look at verse 5. I lie down and sleep, I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. That's a lament. Now when you look at this first book, 1 through 41, they're almost all Psalms of David, designated Psalms of David. David has 73 of the 150 that are designated as Songs of David or Prayers of David. So this first book, 1 through 41, is almost all David, and they're overwhelmingly laments. David crying out to God in sadness, in darkness, in the pit enemies surrounding that's the nature of book one now i want to go to the end of book one so that's psalm 41 so one through 41 constitutes book one and i want to go to the end the very end of the last psalm in book one that's psalm 41 and go to verse 13 Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Now, doesn't that sound like a conclusion? The call to praise, that's hallelujah. That's the word for, that's a command to praise. Allelu, praise. Yah, short for Yahweh. That means praise the Lord. It's a command. 
It's not just a suggestion. We should. It is praise the Lord. So book one, although filled with laments, ends with praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. Now, when you turn to book two, do you have in your Bible to say book two, 42 to 72? There you go. That's book two. Now, you still have a lot of laments in book two. You still, um, but the, the, the difference now is you have others uh, aside from David dominating the collection. This first psalm, Psalm 42, is a, a song from the sons of Korah. Like that. Hear that? That's a song of Korah. Right on time. Just when I wanted it. Um, sons of Korah, not Korah, because he got swallowed up by the earth. So he's not singing any songs. But the sons of Korah, the descendants of Korah, apparently not, not all his house was swallowed up by the earth. But they, Korah had resisted, and you can find it in number 16, he'd resisted Moses' leadership. And he led about 250 other people to do the same. And as judgment on them, the earth just swallowed them up. So these aren't songs of Korah. These are the sons of Korah, who was musical and was part of a musical family. And so some of these psalms are not going to be David, although David's still going to have some psalms here. But it begins with lament again, 42, 43, songs of lament. Uh, but I'm going to skip all the way to the end now of book 2. So go to Psalm 72. It's actually the, it's the one, there's maybe two songs of Solomon. This is one of the two. Moses has one. And Solomon has two. And this last psalm is the glory of the coming Davidic king and of the coming kingdom. It starts, Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. May he judge your people in righteousness. Who is the great king? Not David, not Saul, not Solomon. Solomon, this is his song, points to Jesus. He's the king who will rule with righteousness. Now, that's not to exclude Solomon, but can it point beyond Solomon? Can it mean more than just Solomon? And that's my point. Now look at the end of 72. Verse 19. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Another call to praise and the, and the declaration amen and amen. Now you get an interesting little addition there. This concludes the prayers of David, son of Jesse. Now that suggests the end of a section, doesn't it? Look what comes next. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. He's a Levite singer in David's court. He has 12 psalms that are attributed to Asaph. And uh, Psalm 73, and you just follow 74, a song of Asaph, 75, uh, Asaph, 76, Asaph, 77. So you see the collection now, there's some, it's not random. You've got others now singing these psalms. So this collection, we started with 73, so it goes through 89. You've got some songs of Korah included here. Now look to the end of Psalm 89. This is the end of book 3. Now you should already be expecting. You're going to hear it's going to be the, the command to praise the Lord. That's what it is, verse 52. So this is Psalm 89, 52. Praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and amen. End of book three. Do you have book four? Beginning at Psalm 90? Okay, here's our fourth book in the collection. Here is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. That's what the title of it says. Now the titles were not composed in the original Psalm. These were added later, but I see no reason to reject them. So we have here a prayer of Moses, and if you look at the prayer, skip like all the way over to verse 13. Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. 
It's the same prayer that Moses prays in Exodus 32 when he's asking God to be merciful to the Israelites when they melted down gold and worshipped into a calf and worshipped it. It's a similar kind of prayer for mercy as you have in Exodus 32. So that's where book 4 begins, and it goes through 106. It's a shorter collection. You've got Psalms of David here. Then you come to Psalm 106. Verse 1, praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. And then look at the end of 106, verse 48. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. So now what, what are we learning here? That there's laments, there's prayers of confession, there's lots of darkness and doom and enemies and the pit and waters rising. But in every section, it's moving towards praise. So far, four books, they're all moving towards praise. Four books, they all end with the call to praise the Lord. And really, from Psalm 73 on, which is back, that's the opening of book three, from that point forward, you're, you, you, you move towards more and more praise and fewer and fewer laments. Now think about that. Every book ends with a call to praise the Lord, and throughout the collection, the majority of laments are early, and it's moving towards praise in the whole collection. But that's what every individual book does as well. They're moving towards praise. There's something to be learned from that, that life is filled with ups and downs and hardships and things that are sometimes too awful to even express with words. And yet the trajectory of our lives should be towards praise. That doesn't say there won't be days when we lament and cry out with words. Sometimes we don't even have the words. Sometimes we're too blue to sing. Some days we sing the blues. Some days we're too blue to sing. But the, but the movement of our life should be towards praise. And that's what we've seen in every book. And guess what's going to happen in book five? So go to book five, beginning at Psalm 107. Now there's a few laments in here. But there's overwhelming praise and thanksgiving in this final book. So it begins in Psalm, with Psalm 107. Um, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. That's the beginning of book five. Now there's lots of other interesting connections. You can see the way like these books are stitched together with themes that sort of tie them together. So we're here at Psalm 107, right? Just go back to the few verses just before 107. So look at the end of 106. You're, you're already there. Look at verse 47. So this is Psalm 106, 47. This is near the end of book 4. And here's the cry. Save us, Lord our God, and gather us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Then praise be to the Lord. So it is the save us, Lord, is the cry. Now look at 107. Go down to verse 6. So this is now the beginning of book 5. Give thanks to the Lord, but look at verse 6. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them in their distress. Now what happened back there in 47? Save us, Lord, at the end of 106, 47. Save us, Lord, our God. Gather us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Crying out to the Lord. And now in the next Psalm, 107, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them in their distress. You see that verse 6? Then look at verse 13. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them in their distress. Look at verse 19. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress. Verse 28. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. There's the crying out, save us, Lord, and the next psalm affirms that he will save us 
They cried out to the Lord and he saved them from their distress. It's an affirmation of crying out to the Lord. Save us. Book 5 begins with answer to that cry. Yes, the Lord will deliver you from your distress. Now look at Psalm 146. Now how many, how many psalms in total? So when we come to 146, how many psalms are left? 146, 147, 148, 149, 150. So in the fifth book, you come to the last five psalms. Psalm 146. This is the beginning of five psalms that are called Hallelujah Psalms. Because all five of them begin with the call, the command to praise the Lord, and all five end with the call to praise the Lord. So the whole collection, 150, has been moving towards praise the Lord. The end of every book, praise the Lord. Then in the last book, the last five, all begin and end with the call to praise the Lord. A fitting end to a collection that's moving towards praise from the beginning. So look at Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. That's verse 1. Praise the Lord my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Then go down to verse 10. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. It's a hallelujah song. It begins and ends with hallelujah, praise the Lord. Then look at Psalm 147, verse 1, praise the Lord. How good it is to sing praises to our God, how pleasant and fitting to praise Him. And then look at Psalm, 20, uh, Psalm 147, uh, verse 20, the last. He has done this for no other nation, they do not know His laws, praise the Lord, hallelujah. So 146 begins and ends, hallelujah, praise the Lord. 147 begins and ends, praise the Lord, hallelujah. Then 148, guess where it begins? Praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise Him in the heights above, praise Him, praise Him, praise Him, praise Him. And on the heavens above and the earth below, praise the Lord. Look where it ends, verse 14, He's raised up for His people a horn, Praise of all his faithful servants of Israel, the people close to his heart. Praise the Lord. I'm guessing 149 is going to do the same thing. Verse 1, praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song. And then verse 9, Psalm 149.9 ends, praise the Lord. And then 150 is just verse after verse, six verses. Praise the Lord. Verse 1, praise the Lord. Verse 6, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now, does that look like just sort of a random throwing 150 against the wall or just sort of pulling them out of a bucket and just, you know, randomly assembling them together? Absolutely not. There is purpose and intention in the way that these 150 Psalms are grouped together. And it's not easy to find themes in it for each book, but you can see the movement towards praise. And uh, as much as I enjoy looking at the lament psalms, uh, because sometimes I feel like lamenting, I've had enough uh, darkness, enough in the way of difficult days, hardships. Now, I'm blessed. Many people have had so much more that they've had to face in their lives but I've had my moments and in those moments lament is the thing that brings me the most comfort that in those moments I can say those things to God that I'm feeling even if they found sound a little irreverent even if they're not so courteous even if they're saying to God I'm really angry at you why did you do this why are you not listening it's okay. In fact, that's the quickest way to praise because you've got to deal with those emotions. 
And I'll just give you an example, one, because it's the one that stands out. I assigned this for one of my, ta one of my passages that my biblical interpretation students have to do an interpretation of this passage, Psalm 137. Nobody here got that one, did you, in hermeneutics? Okay. So this is one of those um, community psalms where the Israel's crying out to God in their distress. And there's no title that tells you what it is, but it's clear from the first line what it is. Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. By the rivers of Babylon. This is Babylonian exile. These are people at this moment in time who've been carried away to a pagan land from the land that God had given to Abraham, their forefather. This was their land they'd been carried out of into a pagan land where it's going to be nearly impossible to live out God's law to them. They don't have a temple. The Babylonians aren't going to prepare for them food that fits the clean and unclean laws. I mean, they're in a horrible situation. They long to go back home. And there we sat down by the rivers of Babylon and we wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us, asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They, sing, they said, sing to us one of your songs of Zion, which is meant as a, a mock, a taunt. The Nazis did that to Jews in concentration camps. They made them sing. They made them sing during executions. They made them sing when they were doing things in the courtyard, working, and there, there's been multiple survivors of uh, concentration camp. Uh, uh, Schmidt, last name Schmidt's one that, that I've read, who talks about how they forced them to sing as a way to just demoralize them. Sing happy songs in a concentration camp. Well, that's not new. That's what the Babylonians were doing to these Israelites. And they say, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I don't remember you, if, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. So that's when you're too blue to sing. They're saying, sing us one of your songs of Jerusalem. And they say, how can we sing in this foreign land? The irony is, this is a song they're singing. They're singing a song that we don't have a song to sing. But the Babylonians, wouldn't, they couldn't understand this song. This isn't written in Babylonian or Aramaic. It's written in Hebrew. So it can be subversive because uh, the tormentors don't know really what they're saying. And then verse 7. You want to talk about lament? You want to talk about more than lament? You want to talk about wanting vengeance on your enemies? Remember, Lord, when the, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Edomites were the neighbors of Judah. So they, when the Babylonians invaded, the Edomites cheered the Babylonians on. And I'm not sure the Israelites expected them to go to war for them, but, but don't cheer our enemies on. And then daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction... Happy is the one who repays you according to what you've done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes their babies' heads against the rocks. That sounds like a really bad attitude. I mean, that's you talk about wishing vengeance. That's not just on the warriors. That's asking for vengeance on the warriors' babies. And not even just the warriors. Any Babylonian baby would do. Now you have to know what those Israelites had endured in that Babylonian invasion, what that would have looked like when they breached those walls and got in, inside Jerusalem. You can bet they stomped on Israelite babies. Families were destroyed, women were raped, men were killed, the best and brightest carried away into captivity. You can understand that. And you could say to me, man, you know, I don't think people should wish that kind of vengeance on their enemies, and I agree with you. But my question is, what do you do when that's what you feel? What do you do with that? What do you do with those feelings? Press them down. Repress it. Try to act like it's not there. Smile through gritted teeth. Feeling good. How are you? Doing good. Doing real good. 
you're just filled with anger and bitterness and you think God's deceived by that? God doesn't know what your heart's doing? So you can press it down. Have you ever tried that? You ever tried just repressing really strong emotions? It doesn't work very well. Uh, that will end up like a you know, geyser welling up in you, and you're going to blow. And when, when we do that, we almost always blow on people that aren't our enemies. We blow up on our loved ones, people closest to us. Don't do that. But you still got all these emotions, so what are you going to do? Well, okay, go get a gun. Just go get your vengeance. Go find your enemy's babies and bash their heads in. I mean, that's an option. I'm not recommending that. I'd say no to that. So what do you do? You do exactly what these Israelites did. They cried out to God. They wanted vengeance, so they asked God to get their vengeance. And I think that's the answer. What do you do when you have emotions like that? You express them to God. You cry out to God. And then you say to God, Okay, God, now I trust you with it. If you've got children, and I know I've told you this before, but my, my two, who are now 20 and 16 tomorrow, with the younger one, um, five years older, the older brother, he really had the younger one right where he wanted him, you know, for a long time. Now, now the younger one's a little bit taller and uh, probably bench presses more. So there's not so much of that these days. It's been a while since Levi came crying to me, bruised or bloodied by his brother. Nothing ever broken, thanks be to God, but often bloodied. And especially when he was like three or four or five, they'd be playing something, basketball or soccer in the backyard, and Levi ends up getting pushed into the fence or knees scraped out on the basketball court, and he'd come running to me or his mother, and, and he's so angry, he doesn't even have words for it. He's just screaming, trying to express himself with words, but words fail him. When you finally get him calmed down, it's all about how bad Luke is and how much he hates his brother. And why is he so mean to me? And telling me what I ought to do to him. Like, you know, time out forever. That kind of thing. And, and as a parent, you've got to figure out in that moment, what are you gonna, how are you going to deal with this child who's had all these strong emotions wanting vengeance. And, and your options are kind of similar to what I was saying. I could say to Levi at that moment, now Levi, you just need to stop right now. You shouldn't talk that way about your brother. You should love him, and you shouldn't wish evil on him. So I don't want, ah, I don't want to hear it. I probably tried that a few times. That doesn't work. That doesn't, that doesn't, really help long-term with the problem. I could get a notebook. I said, well, Levi, wait just a second. Now, what do you want me to do to him? Time out for three months, okay? Take his TV privileges, smash his PS whatever, um, okay. And then go do that? Now, Luke may have been punished from time to time, but it, I wasn't following Levi's list. That's not the way to handle it either. But, but somewhere along the way, I figured out that if you just let him pour it all out, just pour it out, and then say, okay, now I'll take care of it. If he trusts me, which most of the time he did, we were all right. And I think that's precisely what we find in these laments. But I don't want to spend my time all on laments because that's just the first step to getting back to praise. You got to do something with those strong emotions to be able to get to real honest praise and thanksgiving and that's what's happening in the movement of the Psalms all the way to these final five. Five hallelujah Psalms. Not laments. Not prayers of confession. Not the waters are rising, not asking for vengeance. Praise. And so a perfect way to end uh, any study of the Psalms is with Psalm 150. I actually 
uh, did this, was asked to do this in chapel. We did a series uh, on the stained glass windows. Now that was after Tim, I'm sure. Was that during your time, Daniel? Eric? Nope. Well, it was in between these three. I guess that would have been after uh, Daniel then, maybe. But we've got windows in Rayleigh Chapel, stained glass windows. And they assigned a different window to different people. And I got uh, the window, if you're sitting in Rayleigh Chapel, on the far right. First one on the far on the right. And I didn't even know. I, I mean, I got to admit, I'd never looked at them closely enough, really, to know what those windows were. But it's Psalm 150. That's what that window is. So I got asked to exegete the window, uh, to interpret the window there, and it was Psalm 150. And um, I knew it, but uh, came to appreciate it more. And here it is. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now, if you're looking for a way to end the 150th Psalm, a collection of five books of psalms that are all moving towards praise, how about the next to last line being, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now, brothers and sisters, I can't top that, so I won't even try. But I will ask it a blessing on you. I'll do that uh, as a conclusion. And... Uh, I'll look forward to the next opportunity to, uh, to see you. Now I pray that as you go from this place tonight into a world that can seem dark, fallen, desperate, filled with challenges, I pray that you would go with God and that you would not be afraid. May the Lord go before you to lead you. May the Lord go behind you to protect you. May the Lord go beneath you to secure you. And may the Lord walk beside you to befriend you. Now go, go with God, and be not afraid.